Thank you for listening to the best barbecue show. This episode is with Blake Thurgood. I met up with him while I was in Ohio with Certified Angus Beef, hanging out at their world headquarters, learning all about the ranching process, learning all about the different barbecue joints that were there visiting, hung out with DivaQ, a few guys from Seattle. But this interview is with Blake Thurgood. He is the owner and operator of Poppy's Barbecue in Guatemala. They cook Texas barbecue way south of our border, uh, actually just south of Mexico. And he's a really interesting dude, a real businessman. We talked a lot about the business, marketing, and a lot of the things that I'm doing with the show. But for now, enjoy this episode with Blake Thurgood of Poppy's Barbecue. Thank you for watching The Best Barbecue Show. I'm in Ohio hanging out at Certified Angus Beef. Uh, across from me is Blake Thurgood of Pappy's Barbecue uh, in Antigua, Guatemala, a guy who has uh, spent a lot of time in Texas and the rest of the world cooking barbecue and has some pretty interesting stories. So I think we should get started. How are you doing, Blake? Doing great, man. Doing great. Good to be here. Born in Corpus Christi, Texas. Oh, okay. Yeah. Cool. Uh, went to high school in Southwest Houston, uh, Sugarland. All right. And then uh, got to Austin, Texas for college. So you went to UT? Oh, yeah. Hook them horns, man. It's <laughs> the truth. Uh, I I, uh, I noticed on my way out of uh, town that there was a lot of burnt orange on the plane. And I was oh, like, yeah? oh, this is a plane leaving Texas. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, did you get into barbecue when you were at UT, or where did that kind of... No, man. I um, I had a business in Austin that I uh, did solar panels, and uh, we had these like long-term projections, you know, like years return on investments kind of thing, and I was just tired of that. So I uh, went on a trip around the world. Guatemala was my first stop, and uh, I was going to stay a couple months and ended up staying a couple years. I uh, went back to UT for business degree and then uh, just before I left Guatemala though that first time I uh, I met a girl and I just absolutely fell in love with her and uh, that was about um, eight years ago nine years ago now and uh, so we've been married four years now we got a little two-year-old in Guatemala wow. and uh, I figured if I was gonna stay in Guatemala I got to do something and I wanted to get out of that kind of corporate world that kind of like term projection so restaurants it was easy you put 100 bucks at the beginning of the day you get 200 bucks out at the end of the day that's what i wanted i wanted to experience that you know cash flow and did you uh did you go there with any thoughts of barbecue or you just you, you, you were in love and you just wanted to hang out in guatemala i just wanted to stay there and i was trying to figure out what industry to get into and uh, i had some engineering background and i'll tell you what happened man was my my wife came up to austin to visit me uh, girlfriend at the time came up to Austin to visit me and we went to uh, um, we went to oh, what is it right next to the convention center uh, Ironworks Ironworks we went to Ironworks and she was in a beautiful white dress and it was the first barbecue experience and we got the dry rub ribs because she had her white dress on and she finished a whole rack and she just kept eating, man. Some she kind of woman there. She absolutely loved it. So it was her, I guess, her original idea 
for me to start cooking barbecue. I did some samples. They were horrible. But uh, as time went on, I, I realized I was going to open up a restaurant. I was committed. So I started calling up and emailing and messaging all the barbecue pit bosses in Austin. And they all took me under their wing and showed me how to do it right. Well, and I think I think part of anyone's barbecue journey starts with terrible barbecue. <laughs> yeah, I'd imagine. It's not easy to do. Well, and I, I started in the Northeast, so I was doing, uh, you know, soaked wood chips and things that I know are terrible. Ideas yeah, now. right? But, wood chips. You know, stuff I read on the internet or whatever. I had no direction because I was in upstate New York, and there's not, no one knows how to barbecue up there. I can imagine. Oh, my gosh. And it's cold, so you can't even do it year-round, can you? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm not afraid of the cold. I, I, I was I was happy to come back here because I haven't been in this kind of winter in a few years. Okay. And I was like, okay, I'm not a wimp yet. Wow. I'm afraid that Texas will make me soft, you know? Yeah. No, I'm. you know what? After being in Texas for so long, I'm kind of enjoying the cold. Somebody told me recently that I better watch out because after a couple of days of being cold, you just hate it. But right now, I'm enjoying it. It's nice up here. It's crisp. Yeah, it's crisp. <laughs> exactly. So I'm sure New York is like that, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, it's... Where I grew up is literally straight east from here, so it's almost the same climate. We got a lot more snow because we're on the other side of the lakes, and the Gulf Stream just pushes all the precipitation onto of us. Of course. It's crazy. I mean, like, this kind of like walking like this through the snow. And you'd barbecue in that? Yeah, I mean, you just dig a hole and put the, the pit in it. I mean, you were digging out everything. You dig out your car. You We built igloos every winter. Like, it was like... Really? Yeah. Jeez. And, you, I mean... Barbecue is such like a labor intensive, you have to be over it all the time. Yeah, but we did like, I was doing like indirect on a Weber, you know, I wasn't doing long smokes okay. or anything. I didn't even really get, you know, if you try to find a brisket, now you can, but back in the day, if you went to get a brisket, you get a flat, you get a piece of point, or you, you get chunks, but you never got the whole packer. Okay. Interesting. In New York? In New York, yeah. Okay. Now in, you're in Texas and now you can't find those anywhere. You just all pack Yeah, them. I mean, you just cut it up yourself. Okay. That but. At this point, I was watching a recipe on YouTube, and I watched a guy cut the point, like a like probably eight inches off the point, and it was like almost like it hurt me a little bit. Like, <laughs> why are you cutting up a brisket? You should cook right. the whole thing whole. Right. But obviously, you can't. He's making a soup. You can't put a whole brisket in it. Okay. Yeah. yeah but yeah, yeah. it was just funny because I was like, oh wow, like that actually hurt me a little bit to watch. Just well, I like, guess your education in meat now has kind of expanded since oh, you're yeah. getting into this podcast. It's to the point now where I, I like cringe when I watch people that don't know how to trim a brisket, right? Oh, yeah. And they just cut a big chunk off, and you're like, huh, you just ruined it. What did you do? Why? Uh, Good deal, man. Yeah. But so you traveled. So Guatemala, I'm guessing, has pretty nice climate year-round. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's Is it in the tropics? No. Um, Good question. Uh, No. No, no, no. I don't but think it's, it's real close to the... It's not far from the equator, so you get a pretty good... Mm, oh, the equator goes through South America. So we're... Yeah, we're pretty... pretty the equator goes through Ecuador, right? So we're uh, we're pretty far north of that. So we're we're in technically in the tropics, I guess. Yeah, the tropics. Got yeah, it. which just means it, it rains half the year. <laughs> That's what that means. Does that put a challenge to, to your cooking? Or? It does, actually. Um, we have three components that we monitor during the rainy season because it's a big deal. The first is obviously the moisture in the wood. Uh, if we get too much moisture in the wood, um, you know, we're gonna end up steaming out, uh, adding some little pressure into the chamber, which we monitor the pressure closely. That's another thing that we do is we monitor the pressure of our chamber pretty closely. And then the third is our, uh, our cool down. In the rainy season, our, uh, you know, we, we try to slow down our cool down as much as possible. That makes kind of that spongy texture inside of the meat. 
you know, when you have a good brisket or a good rib that's just really spongy in the middle, like that really nice, loose sponginess. It even looks like it's got air pockets in the middle yeah. of it. That's the cool down. So the slower you can cool it down, and we literally cool 15 degrees over two hours. You know, so the slower that you can monitor that cool down. And when it's raining outside because the humidity, the humidity is actually grabbing the heat and pulling it away. So the more humid it is, the faster we're cooling things down. So we got to make sure we monitor that a little bit better in the rainy season. Now you say the pressure in the chamber, do you have like a, what kind of cooker are you going to? So I've got a reverse flow offset. Uh, I've got three of them. And then I've got uh, a pit smoker in my principal restaurant. And then the other restaurants, um, I've made nine smokers in total and every one of them is different, but they're all based on the reverse flow offset. Uh, this is a, a design that I had originally gotten um, from Wayne Miller. Uh, he's got a um, not a reverse flow offset, and he was begging me to only do reverse flow offset. Um, he says that his has got a lot more maintenance. He's got a direct flow um, brick smoker, yeah, which is beautiful, and he's been using it for years. Uh, but he really stressed the danger. And I think he really scared the crap out of me when he was showing me all the fire damage that he had had. And even the entryway, it still had fire damage. Yeah, I mean, the walls are black with soot in there. It's a, it's a pretty amazing building. Uh-huh. And so I just got super scared. And, you know, when I learned about how reverse flow offset, you can tilt the side and all the fat can run off the side. And you can do the same drain for the exhaust. Um, I started designing my own smokers. And um, they're all reverse flow offset except one. Yeah, and they're good. Yeah, and, uh, you know, Arnis uh, of EV Maze, uh, he makes reverse flows as well. So it's not that common in Texas, but, you know, they're not unheard of. Yeah. And it, it's, a, it's a cool design because you are giving the smoke a little more time. You are almost slowing it down through the chamber. Exactly. And biggest thing for us is direct flow versus reverse flow is we can pressurize the chamber. That's the biggest thing for us. We're at about 5,000. We're just a little over 5,000 feet. So there's, we get a lot of leaky meat if you don't pressurize the chamber. And we pressurize the chamber in two ways. Uh, the first, we use water pans, and then the second is we restrict, we restrict the airflow. On the so are you side. like actually like locking the doors down? And exactly. So it's like a pressure cooker almost. Mm, we're just over one ATM, so we're just over one bar. Uh, the um, just over one uh, atmosphere. Yeah, one atmosphere. So it's just a little bit of pressure. Obviously, you can't really pressurize it like a pressure cooker. Right. We don't do that. No, 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 no. We're yeah, just well, restricting mean, not, a little bit of the exhaust. Not obviously not like a pressure cooker is an insane device. Right. But you don't you, you don't want to risk like an explosion. Yeah. No, we would <laughs> never. That's not how it works. Yeah. No. 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 Uh, but it's cool that you 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 do that much work. I mean, it's a a lot of people just get a bunch of wood and, and get a tube <laughs> yeah. and make it work. Well, I, I am not a chef. I can tell you guys that right now. I'm not a chef. I'm an engineer, right? So for me, the, the cooking is a science. Yeah. And that's about what it boils down to for me. And uh, it's funny because whenever I'm running around talking to other pit bosses and I'm like, man, how do you do that? And they're always like, oh, you know, the, the spices and the this and that. And I'm like, no, man, no, how do you do that? It's, and it always comes down to texture. You know, that's what I'm always trying to accomplish. The flavor, if, if you do barbecue right, the flavor's in the meat. You know, you don't need a bunch of fancy stuff on the outside. We do we do Franklin's, uh, oh my gosh, uh, I don't know if I should say it on podcast, but uh, the Michael Jackson, it's the half black, half white, so the salt and pepper mix, and that's it, right? And uh, 
it's such a big deal when you can, especially being here at Certified Angus Beef, you know, when you can appreciate the quality of the beef so much that you want to keep spices and seasoning off of it, you really want to accentuate the meat, you really want to focus on that, that's a big deal for me, you know. Any, any cook, any pit boss, any chef that wants to focus on the raw materials versus throwing a bunch of stuff and methods on it, I think that's just so much passion right there. That's the real deal, right? Yeah, and, and I think from my own experiments as well, when you put something into a smoker, there's only so much of that that can even transfer through. Almost everything's just going to become part of the bark. Right. You're not really going to get the garlic flavor out of it. Right. <clears throat> it might have a subtle texture or something to it, but you're really, it's just going to be dark and on the outside. Exactly. Unless you start, you know, then you start talking about competition where they inject and some of that's just crazy. Right. You know, pastrami, that's not a bad idea, but when you're like shoving needles in a in a brisket, I feel like you're you're getting away from the But the still barbecue. again, I really think they're doing it for texture. <clears throat> I'd say most of that is texture. A little bit of a little bit of flavor, but it's right really trying to accentuate that texture. So you you have more than one restaurant in Guatemala? Oh yeah. Oh How yeah. How many did you have? Well two two under under uh, under my ownership. And we got a franchise going. Whoa. So franchise, we're trying to go international with the franchise. We're looking at El Salvador this year. Um, we're looking at Colombia this year. And then uh, Mexico, maybe Honduras, maybe Chile. Um, we've got some interesting interesting plans for the future. Actually, what we're working on right now is our beef jerky. Get some new beef jerky. I'll get you a bag of that tonight. Hell yeah. Make sure you try that. Yeah, beef jerky's good. I'll, I'll take some beef jerky. Yeah, man. I almost bought some. We were at the market earlier, but I was like, I can't buy any. I bought like a pastry because I knew we wouldn't get that. But <laughs> right. I was like, I can't buy any food. I did. I mean, I've been eating a salad for a week, just <laughs> planning on coming here and knowing I was going to eat meat this whole time. <laughs> well, we had a bunch of steak last night, and they were like, can we get you anything else? I was like, a little salad would be nice. Yeah, it's right. Something all crunchy. <laughs> can I get a head of broccoli? Head of broccoli. <laughs> well, so obviously you have a great brand. Uh, you have certified Angus beef supplying you. Yeah. Uh, is it is it hard as someone cooking Texas style to to get other things, or are you pretty well supplied down there as far as you know ingredients, meats? It's been super, extremely difficult. It is not easy doing what we're doing, man. It is not easy, and I wish more people would understand that. They don't. It's okay. Tell I don't them. blame them. Uh, <laughs> it is not easy doing what we do down in Guatemala. Um, you know, a lot of people have this weird understanding of where Guatemala is, what it is. Right. Uh, it's just south of Mexico, right? It's between Mexico and Honduras, uh, next to Belize. It's a beautiful little country, minor, mine origin. Um, what's great about Guatemala? which is also the worst thing for a barbecue restaurant, is it's very culture rich. So you got a lot of indigenous cultures still living the same way that they've lived for the past few hundred years. You know, not much has changed except now maybe they got a cell phone. So you can imagine a country of like 17 million people, you know, millions and millions, 16.9 million people are just not interested in barbecue. Yeah. So we've been real really uh, good at targeting our very specific market. We have about 300,000 people in the country that we target to, and we're very lucky that the that the people that we do have have become loyal. We own about 85 to 95% of the market for barbecue. Uh, we've taken some steps to kind of register the brand BBQ to make sure that we own the space. 
and um, you know we're just waiting for the day that we saturate our own market but yeah getting materials um, we don't get wax paper that's something that's just something that everybody should have wax paper right but we don't get it we don't get butcher paper down there it's so really, what do you use uh, we're, we're cooking in aluminum we're wrapping up in aluminum it's still Texas style. It's still Texas style. In the yeah. right part of Texas. I agree. I agree. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so there's just, you know, we, we didn't originally get brisket down there for a long time. And uh, luckily CAB came down and uh, handed us a brisket and we started bowing it in from then on. It's just a beautiful, beautiful piece of meat. Well, and I've been learning a lot about, you know, for example, HEB in Texas doesn't necessarily have uh, brisket from uh, CAB. But in Mexico, like all the beef at HEB in Mexico, it's cab. Right so it's uh, it's it's pretty interesting to see kind of the ways things work. Um, did you have a challenge? You know, I've I've interviewed people in California, uh, in New York, in places where they don't get you know a tray, they don't understand like eating off the paper. Mm-hmm. So did you have to kind of adapt to what people expected of you? I'm sure that first cook, people were like, "What are you doing? Like, yeah. What is this?" Oh, definitely. Definitely. So educating the market is one of the things that we were doing a lot of in the beginning, and we pretty much stopped, right? Um, understanding how marketing works in barbecue, you know, you just it's best to just go after, uh, let, let your clients tell the story to their friends, right? So what we focus on is we focus on what's called O to O, online to offline. So we create the story that people tell other people. So when they come into our restaurant and they have an experience, you know, for example, our waiter would go up to a table and go, hey, welcome to Poppy's Barbecue, you know, best brisket in Guatemala, right? And then that person leaves our store and they go and they tell their friend as an advocate, oh, man, you really need to go try Poppy's Barbecue. It's the best brisket. And their friend would go, oh, did you try the brisket? No, I ate the ribs, but it's supposed to be the best brisket. You know, it's, we tell the story to our clients and they go off and they tell it. And that's how we've been doing our marketing. We've been letting the people that actually know tell the story. So all we have to do is just prove ourselves, right? So when somebody comes in and we satisfy them as a client, um, you know, they, they think it's good. They, we meet their expectations or exceed them. We're achieving that. Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, the, the hardest, besides, you know, marketing in itself, you know, I, I, my whole uh, brand is visual, audio, you know, it's, is marketing. And so, but the other thing that, that has to go with that is when, when the marketing works, mm-hmm. when people show up, you have right. to perform. Because right. if, if your marketing is amazing, but your restaurant sucks, right. you're not, not going to yeah. get anywhere. It's all about meeting those expectations. And, and that's the challenge. And that's the thing, man. Check this out. So you go to Central Texas Barbecue, you, you go to Snow's, you're going to get the staples. Right? You're going to get brisket, you're going to get ribs, you're going to get pulled pork, you're going to get sausage, you're going to get beans, you're going to get iced tea. Right? That's what we sell. Right? If you go to Leanne's and, you know, she's got brisket with sriracha and who knows what other else cool fun stuff they're dealing with, it's a great experience for a saturated market. But when you're in an unsaturated market like what Snow's in or what we are in in Guatemala, this unsaturated market wants the staples. So we focus on doing the best ribs simple dry rub best ribs we could possibly do brisket simple but just we got five meats and six sides that's all we do that's all we do we've been very successful with that very very successful keeping to those staples and doing it right do you have uh i I know some guys in texas who are helping mexico 
and a couple other countries start barbecue competitions and do things like that. Is there a barbecue culture outside of your style, obviously, uh-huh. down there? Or people, is barbecue oh, yeah. even a word that people use? Yeah, so barbecue, I guess, in most countries of Latin America has been grilling meat, right? So actually, our biggest barbecue competition, they don't even use brisket. They don't smoke it. It's a one-day competition. You can get there at like 6 a.m., and that's the earliest you can get there. And then you start serving at 11. So it's not real barbecue the way that we know it here in Texas. But Open fire cooking. Yeah, well, we still jump in the competitions and win the crap out of them, man. Yeah. Hey, you know. We got more wins than win. anybody else. We get, I think I think it's safe to say we are the most award-winning restaurant in the whole country. Nice. Because of all the barbecue competitions that we've won, that we've walked away with titles on. And the other stuff you're seeing, is that like a la paria, asador type stuff? Or like are you seeing that kind of big open pits with hanging meats? Or what, what's... What's the Guatemalan? Because I've talked to people who've been all over the world, but I haven't really covered Guatemala as far as what their local fire sure. food culture is. Sure, and you're exactly right. It's the paria. It's the grill that's got some charcoal underneath it, and uh, they're they're grilling up thin cuts of meat, usually brahma, uh, usually young brahma. Really? And uh, that's yeah. the humped one, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and they're calling it barbecue. You know, they're like, let's do a barbecue. Barbacoa. Um, no, they, well, barbacoa is more of a Mexican term. Okay. Yeah. And you know, there's a story, I don't know if this is true, but there's a story floating around that barbacoa means netted fish in Caronqua, Indian, which comes off the coast of Texas. Hmm. Right. And the story goes that, uh, the butchers in Southern Mexico, when they first started doing cattle down there would chop maybe a cow a day, for example, and when they wouldn't sell something. They would adopt, so when the Caronco Indians would catch a bunch of fish, they didn't have to go fishing every day, which also meant that they had now start preserving this fish, so they would preserve it with smoke, smoke and salt. So smoke is a natural preservative, right? And uh, so that's where the whole history of barbecue came from. Now it moved into these butcher shops as they would chop anything that they didn't sell that day, they'd have to preserve it for the next day, so they'd just do an overnight smoke. Right, and they would preserve it with salt, some seasoning, and smoke. And then the next day, they would sell it as cooked meat. That's where this whole like culture started from. And as they started doing cattle drives, the story goes that this name just started moving up north. And when they did the trains in in Dallas and Fort Worth with all the stockyards, they would only ship good cuts of meat up to New Jersey, New York, North Carolina, and in Chicago and D.C. And uh, what got left in Texas at these stockyards which is mounds of the bad cuts, briskets, shanks, the ribs, the head of the cow, all these things got left. And so they had hundreds, even thousands of pounds of this meat left over and they had to preserve it. So they didn't have refrigeration. So they, uh, they just smoke it all and do big barbecues. It's why barbecue is such like a group event, you know, cause you're cooking a bunch of meat at once. It's usually leftover. You're slow, low and slow doing it, and then you serve it out to your friends and family. Well, yeah, and Wayne Miller would tell you that, you know, that's how they started was they had a meat market, and then they started yeah. smoking things. But now those ribs, those briskets, that's some of the most sought-after meat in the world now. Oh, definitely, definitely. We're exporting briskets like crazy. I'm sure the cab guys could tell you a hundred ways that brisket is taking over the world, you know, by the numbers. I just know from, you know, how long I've been just watching the whole thing. Sure. Uh, so 
Now you talk about you know community and and people coming together. Are there usually big groups at your restaurant or? Oh yeah, oh yeah. We got six principles that define our restaurant: um, quality, consistency, value. Obviously, are things that we do inside, but then outside the restaurant, our number one biggest principle is family, right? And we start with the employees. Um, I'm really lucky. I've got some of the most amazing employees. In an industry where there's a lot of turnover, no matter what country in the world you're in, uh, I have to say we've lost very, very few employees over the past eight years. Very, very, very few. Actually, I can count them on one hand. Um, In the, shoot, 60, 70 plus employees that we have now in all the restaurants. So it's, it's been incredible working with these people, empowering them to make decisions. And what happens is, is when you get good employees, especially ones that stay, the community starts looking for them. I'm not the image of the restaurant. My staff is. My pit bosses are that are in the kitchen all day. For example, my first employee still works with me. His name's Mini-Me. I called him Mini-Me because I, want, I taught him everything that I thought that I knew, right? He's way better than me now because he's been practicing every day for the past eight years. But he's, he's Mini-Me, man. He's, people come in, they look for him, and he's just the best. You know, if they want a special cut, if they want something right, you know, if they want to take some stuff to go, they look for Mini Me, and he chops it up for them. So you have the same beard and hat. Yeah, right. Yeah, he looks just like a good old white boy. No, he's a he's a Guatemalan, and we picked him up when he was seventeen, and I think he's he's in his twenties now, and man, he's a rock star. He's cool. So that's the thing about all of our staff is uh, the community comes in, they look for our staff. Our waiters are super personable. You know what it's like going into a good restaurant with cool service where they remember everybody's name. That's exactly what we try to provide. I wish I wish it was easier to teach because it should be everywhere, you know? Yeah. It, it's it's it still boggles my mind when someone suggests a place and I sit down and I'm immediately presented with something. I'm like, oh God, this is not gonna be as fun as I thought it would <laughs> right. be. Right. Oh, exactly right. Not as fun. Yeah. I was exactly uh, right. I was mentioning over breakfast today how, you know, people people you know calculating tips all this stuff i'm always just rounding up and if you're uh if, if it's great service i'll round up to 50 percent. i don't oh, care wow. it's like, like yeah we we should value the people that work so hard to especially in barbecue um i've been saying now for a long time that the price everyone should be very happy with the price of brisket because uh-huh. everyone worries about if it goes up a dollar or whatever that price is going to double in the next 10 years because of the demand God, and i hope it does that's what I'm, but I'm saying I don't think it's going to double on the supply end, but I think it needs to go up substantially for the restaurants because you can sell a steak Interesting. for so much more and the same weight of brisket is supposed to be $25 a pound, yeah, right? And right. a steak is, a, is a, a very quick, easy cook, whereas a brisket takes a team all day. Yeah. And I think that, that well, you're also a barbecue guy, so you see the back, the behind the scenes. Not a lot of people see yeah. the behind the scenes. I eat in the pit room. I'm rarely like yeah. in the restaurants. Not I'm a lot of people know what you know, and that's that's a prize, man. I'm trying to tell them. Good deal. Good deal. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of work going into it. Well, and, and it, it's not just work, but it's passion, it's love. It's like you, when you're happy and you're cooking, yeah, you create a better product than if you're like pissed off. And you know, I've I've worked in a million kitchens where. There's someone angrily cooking in the back, and you just know the food's not going to be oh, good. Geez, yeah. You, yeah, you want to, you want you. Even if you're busy, even if you're hectic, you still have to like be happy about what you're doing. Happy employees make a happy product. Doesn't matter what industry or where you're at. That's how it works, man. You're exactly right. And so, are your 
do you have a, a similar kind of a Texas setup? You got big tables and everything at your restaurant? We tried that in the very beginning. We actually, in the very beginning for the first two years, we were open just Friday, Saturday, Sunday, three days a week. Uh, we didn't do a whole lot of um, sit down. We did a lot of to go. And then we got a larger space next door. Immediately, I was like, oh, we're going to make big tables and we're just going to make people sit together, picnic benches and stuff. And we did it. The culture, you know, you have to adapt to the culture. You can't re-educate certain things in the right. culture. You can educate them on food, something that's quick and easy. But something like sitting next to somebody at a table, even if it's a big table and there's plenty of room, it's part of the culture. They won't. They won't do it. You know, so they'll look in the restaurant, they'll look around, they'll see that there's room, but they'll be like, oh, no, thanks. And they'll walk away and go on to the next restaurant. Um, it's just it's just part of the culture and it's a beautiful part of the culture, too. But uh, it's something that doesn't work for big tables. So we ended up doing little tables that you can put together and you can make a huge table if you want. And, man, we'll have a group of, I don't know, 40, 50 people at one table just with all these little tables pushed together. And, yeah, it'll work out just fine. Uh, adapt to the, the location and. Yeah, I mean, a lot, a lot of restaurants do that, and it's cool that I, that people that, you know, groups that big like to come and eat there. That's that's not yeah. an easy service. Yeah, definitely. Oh, yeah, we get a lot of people. We got a lot of groups, a lot of groups. And do you do, like, the whole cutting board Texas style, or is it more like table service? Uh, we've got both. We've got family style on the menu that most groups order because it's a little bit cheaper per person. And then, uh, you know, we've got the standard one meat, two meat, three meat plates with two sides. And we got six meats to choose from, um, including chopped beef and brisket. So we do both of those with the same meat. And, uh, and then we got six sides. Just keep it simple, man. We got six, six types of meat, sorry, five types of meat, six sides, and three types of bread. And even the sides, was it, it was a difficult to source any of those ingredients? Is it? You have like green beans or something that's hard to find down there? Now, green beans are really easy to find down there. Nice. And I cook them in a skillet, old school style, where you burn them just a little bit. You know, you put them in a skillet dry with a little bit of carrots and you burn it just a little bit and then you just dump a mound of butter on top. <laughs> so good, man. That sounds good to me. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you don't have to slow cook everything. Yeah, right. Now, the green beans, we got uh, spicy corn with those, some fresh jalapenos and some, and some corn with some East Texas seasoning. Uh, we got some of the best French fries in Central America, and we got some great French fries. Yeah. What What makes a good French fry? How much time we got? <laughs> <laughs> well, I've heard of double cook, triple cook. Yeah, we do like double that. cook. Yep, we do drop it down for two minutes, lift it up for a minute, drop it down again for another minute. So it takes four minutes to cook. But the key about the French fry is a French fry needs to be from a cold environment. When French fries are from cold environments, they actually retain a little bit more oils, which make it more flavorful. So that they don't freeze, and they actually retain a little bit more water too with that oil. So when a French fry, when a potato has a lot of water quality, water quantity, water quantity in it, when you got a French fry that's got a lot of water in it, uh, and you throw it into a fryer, that water is going to evaporate instantly, and it's going to shoot out of the French fry. So when water's shooting out of the French fry, oil's not going in. So you're not getting the floppy, oily French fry. You're getting the opposite. You're getting really airy, fluffy French fry that don't have oil in it. So that crispiness, that softness, that kind of hollow texture is in that little thin french fry. And uh, so when we refry it then as well, the outside starts popping as the oxygen and the water inside starts bursting out and bubbling out. And it creates a little bit of extra texture on the outside of the french fry. So the french fry is going to have a little bit more crunchy outside and that hollow kind of fluffy interior. 
So it, where are you sourcing them? Where, where's the cold place you're getting your potatoes from? Man, I'll tell you what, I hate to say this. We get, look, we get four products imported. Four products. Our french fries, they come from Scandinavia. Wow. Our certified egg is beef, which comes from Omaha. Um, we import our ketchup, which I think comes from Atlanta. And then... Uh, is that like Heinz or... Yeah. And then we get our pickles, which are Heinz as well. And that's it. Everything else out of the hundreds of ingredients that we make, the mayonnaises, the mustards, yeah. uh, the coleslaw, uh, sorry, the... Um, oil seasoning. What do you call it? Repoil? What do you call the... Um, cabbage. Cabbage. Yeah. The cabbage. All the vegetables are local. You're thinking in Spanish more than I English. am. Look at that. <laughs> Forgot my English, man. No, this is, uh, you know, we're... Yeah, I'm from Austin. Shoot, man. The local is huge for me. And so as much as I could... You know, I I got I got to tell you something, man. I I hate taking money out of Guatemala. You know, Guatemala needs the most support that they can possibly For get sure. right now. Um, they've they've got a pretty pretty struggling education system. We're working on that right now, but education is probably one of the biggest factors. Uh, but the people are amazing. They're beautiful. Uh, they're hard workers, um, but they're just not they're not being able to keep the money as much as they want in Guatemala. It's a huge industrial economy. It's a huge agricultural economy. It's beautiful. It's perfectly positioned because it's got two oceans, right? So it's got, you know, both ports. And uh, and I just don't want any money to leave that economy. You know, as soon as we pay for a provider that's outside of the economy, it's, it's, it's uh, not money that's not staying in the country. But on that sense though there's certain restrictions on quality like for example certified angus beef happily buy this product because nothing compares you know in guatemala we just can't get the quality of beef well no one probably knows how to butcher a brisket down there i've taught a few people yeah i mean <laughs> but that's what i mean you have to like hand teach them yeah and figure it out you're exactly right yeah well, and, and, we and it sounds you say you're working on the education, so you're you're doing community efforts on top of the restaurant. Massive, massive, hundreds of thousands of dollars we've thrown into the community, in NGOs. We do an NGO night every Thursday night where we hand out uh, hundreds, if not thousands, of dollars to nonprofits every single Thursday, every week, since for the past five six years we've been doing that. So the community is our you know that's where our clients are coming from. That's where our money's coming from. That's where our opportunity to be able to provide for our for our employees are coming from so community is huge for us huge 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 and uh, those are all those are nonprofits based in uh, in Guatemala yep, and there's are legal and official nonprofits we get the tax write off and that's the only benefit we get right yeah, yeah. you should get something forgiven yeah right <laughs> yeah no it's a beautiful it's a beautiful thing there's so many great NGOs uh, these nonprofits focus on education a lot and that's really one of our main focuses we've got more than 55 NGOs now in our in our uh, NGO network that we call it and we support them as much as we possibly can through not only finances that's that's actually one of the worst things that we can do is just give them money so we actually do projects where we take our employees we'll close the restaurant for a day and we'll go out and we'll help paint a school or uh, you know we'll rent some pressure washers and we'll just go clean the, the dog pound you know, and um, right now we're working with a horse NGO. You know, helping the these some of these horses get rehab that have just been through poor education, mal malnourished. You know, and these horses are beautiful creatures, and we want to make sure that 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 gets saved up. Of course, it goes along with the country Texas attitude too, right? 
Yeah, well, uh, uh, and you know, you're also on a in a totally different uh, landscape. Uh, specifically, you know, people keep telling me about this volcano you're cooking on. Can you tell us more about that? Jeez, yeah. So the first two years I was in Guatemala, I was a tour guide. Man, this is funny. This is cool. And uh, you always have to bring, according to the government, you have to bring a local guide up to the top of the volcano with you as a, you know, help for the the local economy. Um, and every time I went up to the volcano, when I was working for this tour agency, I'd go up to the volcano at least two to three times a, uh, a week, right? And every time I went up there, the local guides were always burying down a little bit, and they'd put their sandwich for lunch in the volcano, and they'd pull it out, and it'd be all steamy and hot. So we started doing it too, and one day I brought up an infrared thermometer, and it's sitting there, and it's reading like 215 degrees. Mmm, I don't know what's going on here. So uh, I got a camera crew together, and we decided, uh, me and my wife decided we were just going to take some some meet up. We did the whole the whole journey with a big group and we buried the the meat overnight and pulled it out the next day and man it was tender as you can imagine that was beautiful and that was uh i'm guessing the the park or whoever controls the volcano had to kind of approve that big cook oh good question <laughs> we probably should have done that <laughs> no you know what it's um it's more of an open system yeah they didn't need to approve it uh, we did. We, we've done one on quite a few volcanoes, and we did have to get approval for some of them. But this specific volcano, I believe, is a national park. It is run by the tourism organization, uh, but it's not as regulated. You can almost do whatever you want up there. And so, were you? Did you wrap the meat, or did you build almost like a chamber and then cover it? No, we just wrapped the meat, dug a big hole, and because the volcanoes, it's just inactive. It it's not dormant yet, so it's inactive. I mean, it's got a hot core. Um, and uh, it, the last time it went off was 1976 um, and actually if you watch the video it's on our Facebook page if you watch the video of, uh, of this volcano cook that we did there's another volcano right next to it that's actually active and it goes off between 50 to 200 times a day it's just constantly going off wow big puffs and if you can imagine like uh, the original atom bomb imagine that one of these volcanic eruptions that's 50 to 200 times a day uh, it's about three times the size of one of those atom bombs. So these are big eruptions that are going off right next to us, like right look, about a mile from us that we can just see. and You can, you can hear it too? You can or? hear it. You can feel it. You can feel the heat coming off of it. Wow. As this thing just, just throws all this ash up into the, up into the air. Uh, it's beautiful. It's an incredible experience. And uh, so, you know, this the volcano we were on, there's two volcanoes next to each other. We were on the one that's just inactive. So it still has a hot core, and it'll it'll go off again someday soon, maybe, and uh, and it's still hot, it's barbecue hot. Yeah, and it, it's cool. Well, I've been uh, meeting a lot of guys from Mexico who are learning Texas barbecue, and we've yeah. been talking about the caja china, which is like uh, cooking in a box or burying, you know, the, sure, sure. the old barbacoa, like the the cow head, right, and burying it in the ground. So it's yeah. interesting to see how even though it's turned into metal tubes, that idea of like creating a hot kind of hole and then burying things is still alive. I mean, even in, um, I interviewed uh, Daniel Brown of Brown's Barbecue. Uh, it's a little place actually in Boulder Creek, like off of uh, where Corner Bar is. I don't know if you, you've been in that area, but he 
Um, he is a descendant of one of the first free black colonies in Texas, and they learned from the guys from Mexico to bury it, and that turned into stone pits like mm-hmm. uh, Wayne Miller's. And so I've been kind of hunting down these ideas because Ooh. who knows where barbecue started or if it's just a cycle where everyone just kind of cooked with fire. But it's interesting that the digging the hole in the ground is still kind of, you see it in, in Hawaii, you see it all over the world, and you're doing it with a volcano. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, we're using kind of internal core instead of putting stuff on top. Yeah. But that's that's interesting. Um, you know, going back to the roots, I think, is what we're all trying to do. You know, there's some new modern cooking techniques, but really, like, to get that texture and to get that real science, that meat science, the more back to the roots you go, the more you're going to achieve the results you want. And I think that's so cool. I mean, you, you, you said it, just getting getting into it like that. Well, and I'm sure you learn a lot of history of Guatemala just being there. People probably tell you all kinds of stories. Yeah. Uh, the big thing in Guatemala is the banana leaf, wrapping and wrapping things in a banana leaf, right? So they've got tamales and they've got certain things that are wrapped in banana leaves and cooked. And what's cool about a banana leaf is it's so resilient. You can throw a banana leaf right in a fire and uh, it'll protect whatever's inside of it. So it's cooking with that. So we've been playing with that a little bit here and there. One of the things that I've become a real big fan of is uh, what they call the caveman steak or the cowboy steak, where they're cooking it right on the coals, right on the coals. to sear it. That's one of the things, if you go online and look at some of our videos, that's some of the things that I really like doing, getting right on the coals. Have you ever wrapped a brisket in banana leaves instead of foil? I haven't. You might be a little genius, man. (laughs) That might be an interesting idea. Yeah. I mean, it's probably more expensive than the foil. I need to write that down. That's, That's an interesting idea because it makes a lot of sense. What you want in a foil which I think a banana leaf actually could achieve is uh, you don't want there to be an air gap between the foil and the meat that dries the exterior part of the meat out, right? Yeah. You do want a little bit of crunch, uh, the, you know, that exterior bark, and you want it to be a little bit dry, but you can achieve that in other ways. So maybe wrapping um, an entire brisket in a banana leaf, that's a... You may be on something, man. <laughs> well, when you make it, uh, you'll have to let me know. I need to plan a trip. Dude, it is so cheap and easy to get to Guatemala right now. You're in Texas. You fly to Houston. We're two and a half hours from Houston by plane. Yeah. It's it's so easy to get there. Well, sounds like the show's going to Guatemala. You better come soon. to Guatemala, man. <laughs> you better come to Guatemala. It's a good spot. You know, one of the best barbecue restaurants in the world is in Guatemala. <laughs> <laughs> I've heard of it. It's called Pappy's. Right? It is. So, it is. you know your hat, uh, Ahumador con Leña? Yes. What Can you tell us about that, that, that means slogan? smoked with wood. Oh, okay. Yeah, so we use white oak. It's, uh, white oak is one of those rare things, man, that if you, if you can get a good tree, if you can get a good dry, a, a good density, a good moisture content in your wood, you can just make some beautiful barbecue. And our wood provider in Guatemala nailed it. Absolutely nailed it. I worked with him on how to get the exact moisture content that we want, the right color that we want, so we get the right density. And we actually get two woods, you know, one that's a drier and one that's a wetter for the longer, uh, for the rest of the day. 
and we never have to touch gas we never have to touch electricity we never have to touch uh, charcoal uh, we are a hundred percent wood smoked and I think that that's so cool if you can nail that wood you don't need anything else yeah yeah when, once you get it started it just kind of takes care of itself yeah do yeah you have, do you have to do I mean do you keep a lot of wood on hand do you have to kind of season oh, yeah. it yourself or are they seasoning it for you before they deliver it the provider seasoning it for us and he is really good he's been getting real good at it he's he actually he actually is in the pine business so he says that the white oak there is invasive species and they're just chopping it down as quick as they can and i'm like good, good enough for you and he's got more land than, than you can shake a stick at well and uh you know you you mentioned that it rains a lot mm-hmm. so you know that's probably a challenge too to seasoning the wood because if it's pouring you know i was just interviewing guys from portland and they were talking about how even the the wood that's seasoned is still pretty pretty wet. Yeah. So no, you're exactly right. It's it, it is it. Uh, that's a struggle. Is so is it? You know, in in Texas we have all kinds of storms, but are you getting more of the like torrential downpours, or is it kind of like rainy days? Yeah. So during the rainy season, if you can imagine in the tropics, it's going to rain like between one o'clock to three o'clock every day, and just pour. Yeah. Typically. Yeah. <laughs> well, because in Texas, you know, growing up in upstate New York, I was used to storms being a certain way and a certain intensity, and they're not mm-hmm. necessarily as crazy. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're not necessarily as crazy in Texas. You know, we get a lot of drizzles, we get a lot of things, but Certainly. the pouring, pouring rain is not something you. It actually, uh, the last big storm we had, it finally poured, poured, and it like took a, a, a panel off my shed. Whoa. That I have to go replace when I get back. Well, how are you adjusting to this new climate in Texas? The heat and all that. It, it's actually nice. Uh, it's not as... Except when it's like super drought summer. It's 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 not that bad. In in New York, I would like... Sometimes if, you know, you forget to use chapstick or whatever, you get nosebleeds and your lips crack and all that from the winter. And uh-huh. you really don't get that in Texas unless, uh-huh. unless it's like... You know, the few years I was in there for like the full-on droughts, like 60 days in a row over 100 degrees, Whoa. then it starts to get pretty dry. Definitely. But Austin is surprisingly mild and, yeah, you know. Yeah, you enjoyed it, huh? I, I love it. I mean, I, I ride a motorcycle, so, no you know, deal. there's a... What kind of bike you got? Harley Sportster. Nice. An old one, a 91. Uh, rigid or you want to... It's a soft tail, yeah. Soft tail. Yeah, it's a it's called a hugger. So it's um in the '90s they made them a little shorter. It's a little you know I don't know. I just really like the geometry and the ride on it. It's a little tighter on the turns and good deal, man. It's a it's a fun bike. Nice. Um, so you know most people if they've been to Guatemala have probably been to a resort or something that's like not as you know you're you're in the cut you're in the culture. So do you? Do you find like can you take dirt bikes around or people riding horses like what what is like the if you're gonna go to Guatemala and really experience it do you go to the country do you try to stay in the cities what if I was to come visit you where would where would we go besides your restaurant volcanoes the volcanoes, volcanoes. are so cool man they're everywhere there's twenty twenty plus volcanoes really? in Guatemala and is it like uh like kind of like a mountain range are they in a row or they're kind of spread out? They're, it's kind of in a, in a mountain range, right? So what's cool about Guatemala is there's so many different climates. There's the coastal areas, which are the lowlands, which are really warm and muggy, a lot of mosquitoes, um, and a lot of sugarcane. Then uh, those are kind of broken up by a really big, really tall 
um, range of volcanoes. And in that range, there's actually three active volcanoes. So those are the cool ones to hike because you can actually like feel it and see it. Yeah. You can even like it's throw sweaty. some marshmallows on the lava. I mean, you can, you can get right up next to it. And uh, I think those are some of my favorite experiences are doing the volcanoes. But then there's amazing mountain biking. I mean, there's illegally, I think they have to have uh, trails from one piece of land to another piece of land that are what they call single track. Yeah. So they're just real narrow trails that you can mountain bike on. So there's a lot of mountain biking. There's kayaking. Uh, one of the most beautiful lakes in the world is in Guatemala called Lake Atitlan. And it's surrounded by volcanoes. And it is it's just beautiful. It's just absolutely beautiful. And you can swim in it and kayak in it and do all sorts of fun stuff. Um, and then there's a whole another culture of coffee, right? So there's this whole coffee experience that they do. So you can go horseback riding through the coffee farms. And they've got zip lining there. Um, I love Guatemalan coffee. Dude, it is naturally sweet. You don't need milk. You don't need sugar. It's just so good right off the bat. Yeah, I tell my friends, if, if you let me make you coffee, you know, I try to make it a very gentle way, that you, you can drink it without needing milk or sugar or any of those right. things. Coffee has an amazing flavor. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm probably, if I'm addicted to one thing, it's probably coffee. All right, oh man. Well, I got a present for you then. Okay. I love presents. Yeah. <laughs> Excellent. Beef jerky and coffee. Beef jerky and coffee. Best friends for life. All right. Good deal, man. I love it. That's that's actually all I brought. <laughs> uh, you know what else I got for you? I got a T-shirt for you. Oh, even better. So that's, that's all I wear. I mean, these are actually both local bars in Austin. Cool. But uh, but usually I'm wearing Represent. barbecue gear. Represent. I just nice. I just throw on whatever I bring, so <laughs> I, I didn't realize. And then I looked, and I was like, oh, they're both bars. Yeah. Uh, but uh, so I ask everyone who's comes on the show, you know, what's your message to you, know, you didn't start in barbecue, but you found a passion for it. You studied with the greats. Uh, what's your message to people who right now are getting into barbecue or getting into this business and and uh, you know are are trying to open the restaurant or just get better at cooking? What's the message? God, there's so many. If I were to really pick at one, I would say focus on quality, right? Don't hurt barbecue. Barbecue is a very, very sensitive industry right now. There are a lot of people doing some amazing things in barbecue, and unfortunately, there's a lot of people doing some crappy things in barbecue. And, you know, I know I know you guys know you can just drive down anywhere down the street, pick up any old barbecue, and it's going to be horrible, right? That's hurting barbecue. Those are people that are not picking up the quality. They're not understanding what they're doing. You know, they're just making something to make some profit, and that's not not the reason to get into barbecue. If you just want to make some money, dude, go pick up pizzas or Asian food. You know, there's a lot of money in those, and there's not a whole lot of culture here in the States for that. But barbecue, because it's originated here, it's very culture rich. It's got a lot of science behind it. Now, now there's a lot of technology that can help you out um, from Wi-Fi thermometers to, uh, to pressure sensors uh, to, uh, to uh, meat fat content sensors. You know, you, you can really do it right with very small investment, but really understanding that quality is the most important thing. Yeah. And like, start with quality meat. Oh god, that's so easy. So easy to make a good brisket. Just buy good meat. Yeah. So easy to make good ribs. Just buy really good quality ribs. 
and you have some of the best ribs, I guarantee you that's the number one easiest thing to make a good quality restaurant. It's just a good quality product. Right? Everybody says, oh, the chefs say that. Oh, focus on quality of the product. And you're like, I bet you do. But now that I'm into this business, it's so obvious that is the difference between the guys that walk away with you know, $20,000 a year profit from the guys that make $200,000 a year profit. You know, I'm talking profit. I'm not talking sales. I'm talking walking away with a bunch of money in your pocket. The biggest difference is the way that they source the quality of their products. And that's it. Yeah, I mean, you pay a little bit in the beginning for a better quality, but it pays off tenfold sometimes in the end. Look, man, I don't have a whole lot of restaurant experience, but what I've learned is that it's all about percentages, right? So if you're making 15% profit, bottom line profit on $100,000, it's significantly different than 15% profit on $3 million, right? And you're going to get up to $3 million by hitting a higher price point on your menu. Well, I mean, I, I say to everybody, I got, I got three jobs in my restaurant, three jobs and that's it. That's all I do all day long is these three things. And if I'm not doing one of these three things, I'm, I need to focus. The first is lowering costs, right? The second is getting more people in my door. And the third thing, which a lot of people forget, is increasing the value of my client, right? Normally, like for example, when I first started, I think my average client was dropping like seven to 10 bucks in my restaurant. Now I've got them as much as like 18, $19 per person, right? That's a significant change. Yeah. More uh, than double. Per person, not only am I getting more people, but the value of the person coming into the door. I've got now desserts. I've got beef jerky. I've got some, some uh, chips and queso that we, you know we can sell on the table. We got wings, you know. So now they're buying multiple things when before they were just getting a sandwich to go. You know what I mean? So by increasing this value, you can really, especially with quality products, you can really increase your sales without really doing a whole lot. Oh. Makes sense. Words of wisdom from Blake, the Guatemalan Texan. Yeah, but And, uh, yeah, we have a dinner to go to, but I really appreciate you taking the time, and uh, it's been fun talking to you. You have a really cool story. Thank you. I appreciate it, man. Thank you so much. Yeah. It's good to be here. <laughs> hey, they call me the meat man. Y'all don't see me eat, man. Hit on the meat man. Y'all don't see me eat, man. I got jaws like a bear trap, a teeth like a razor. I made tack tongue with a sensitive taster. I was born out in Texas called the land of beef. Never catch a muscle greener, showing the hell of like a meat on the meat man. Y'all to see me eat man.